Developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Billions of people have vision problems, and vision is more than 2020. Vision Beyond Sight will help you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Your vision does not define you. You define your vision. With Dr. Lin's new way to look at your life through a new lens, you will be ready to meet yourself and receive visualizations for miracles to come. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Hi friends, this is Dr. Lynn and welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Today visiting with us is Dr. Kevin Barber. Dr. Barber is truly an amazing person as you'll quickly see. You're going to see his power, his passion, his creativity and influencing abilities. Today we're going to talk about his work with ACE Global. And according to Dr. Barber, the aim of ACE Global is to equip eye care providers with the skills and resources they need to eradicate preventable blindness in their communities. Their primary strategy is to harness capability and confidence through both live and virtual mentorship. So before we get started, let's learn just a little bit about Dr. uh, Barber. He's a board certified ophthalmologist who is currently an anterior segment ophthalmology managing partner at Central Florida Eye Specialist. He's an assistant clinical professor of ophthalmology at University of Central Florida College of Medicine. He's received numerous awards and honors, including the 2021 C International Humanitarian of the Year Award. He's involved in numerous research study and he presents to uh, physicians all over the world. And you'll also see he's very well published. All of this is very impressive, but what truly attracted me to him was his involvement in this nonprofit, Advanced Centers for Eye Eye Care Global. So what an honor to have you on Vision Beyond Sight, Dr. Barber. Welcome. Wow. Thank you, Lynn. You you make me sound like a really interesting person. I kind of want to meet myself. I would love for us both to meet yourself today. That was a that was a very kind introduction, and um, what a privilege to be uh, to be on your show. Well, thank you so much. Uh, let's just kind of jump in and uh, learn a little bit about you. First of all, just your experience and your expertise as an ophthalmologist. Uh, explain to our listeners a little bit, uh, you know, what you're interested in and what you're passionate about. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, as you mentioned, I'm an anterior segment. I'm a, a cataract surgeon uh, primarily. Um, I'm in private practice part-time here in Central Florida, uh, and I, I'd like to stay involved with research and technology that advances uh, advances the field of, of cataract surgery or, uh, or blindness prevention. The other part, uh, other half of my career is leading uh, Advanced Center for Eye Care Global. That's a nonprofit 
um, that's trying to make a dent in the preventable blindness epidemic um, that's on planet Earth today. And so we'll, uh, I'm sure, talk more ab about that. Um, I guess where I, where I got my start is, um, you know, in college, I um, was a philosophy major. <laughs> wow. All the way through my junior year. And um, somewhere towards the end of my junior year, decided that was not for me. And I wanted to go into to medicine. Um, I had a mother that was a nurse and that eventually kind of compelled me to go towards medicine. And the problem was I hadn't taken many science classes and I had a lot of making up to do. Um, and so I found a program that um, would take pre-medical students to the jungles of Honduras and you would live there for three months uh, during the summer and you would get uh, a lot of science classes and you would work um, part of the day in a, in a hospital, in a rural hospital in the jungle there. Um, and then also take some some science classes. And that program, although it was small and not very well known, it boasted that it got, you know, almost 100 percent of their students into medical school. So I said, hey, this is, um, you know, this is a great opportunity for me. And so I went and did that. And to be honest, it was the worst three months of my life. I um, imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I bathed in a river and I got malaria and, wow. um, you know, was sick a lot just from, you know, the food contamination. Um, but it really, um, you know, I left there saying, dear God, please never send me back to that, <laughs> you know, to that terrible place. But it really changed uh, everything. It changed my worldview. It, it opened my eyes to how so much of the world lives and to what, it's to what it is to live like in communities that have no access to, to health care. Um, and interestingly enough, while I was there, a volunteer cataract surgeon came from Michigan and spent uh, a week there at that little hospital in the jungle. And I watched these blind people being led in by a stick or led in by a, a family member um, go into his operating room. And then I would watch him take the patch off the next day and see these big smiles come on these patients' faces as they could see for the first time in many years. And then they would walk home independently. And that had a, a really big uh, impact on me. And uh, I think that was the the initial seed that was planted in my own experience uh, that led me into ophthalmology and um, into uh, becoming a cataract surgeon. Well, that's such an interesting story. And you mentioned, and we'll get more into this about uh, your organization, but blindness from cataracts. Those of us certainly in the States and living in um, areas that have uh, much better healthcare take it for granted and cataracts is almost it's never routine but it's so common and so successful that it's hard for most people to imagine that people are going blind because of lack of treatment for something as simple as a cataract um could you expand on you know what are the scope and causes of many of the preventable blindness conditions that you would work with yeah great um great question so um, when you look at prevent when you when you look at preventable blindness, there there's two major causes. One is untreated refractive error, um, and that's actually the most common. So people that are nearsighted or farsighted and they just don't have access um, or the ability to get glasses or, or contact lenses, um, and so they walk around visually impaired or you know or blind. The second most common cause, and, and depending on which body of literature you look at, um, it's number one and number two can be flip-flopped, but they're very, very close. 
but the next most common is cataracts. And just as you alluded to, that's it, that's a surprise because um, it, it's it's uh, unexpected and it's kind of mind boggling that a, something as simple as a cataract can call can be the leading cause of preventable blindness in the in this world. You know, if if we're dealing with a cancer that doesn't have a cure, we all kind of accept that, and we you know we understand it's an elusive disease. And we're going to wait for bench scientists to develop a cure and bring us a cure. But with cataracts, that's not the case. You know, we've had the cure for a long time. It's a it's a surgery that takes about 10 or 15 minutes and can cost as little as $50. And so how can we as a as a human race and as a human society, a global community, allow uh, estimate of 280 million people live on this planet visually impaired or blind from a cataract, from something that we actually have um, a solution for. And the same for refractive error. We have glasses and we have contacts, but yet we allow hundreds of millions of people on the planet to live visually impaired because they simply don't have uh, don't have access. So those two are the by far and away the most common. And then you start getting into the the less common things, which are you know glaucoma in the developed countries. There's macular degeneration, and then you have um, a lot of the infectious diseases, things like trachoma and river blindness, things like that. But but the majority of those are being eradicated by public health initiatives. Um, and so really the the big um, kind of unconquered demon we have, so to speak, are, are cataracts. Yeah, and I remember many of my colleagues, and even now, uh, many of my colleagues are joining uh, mission groups that go all over the world uh, to work at clinics, and vo they volunteer their time to work at clinics to, and, and most of what my colleagues are doing are finding refractive errors and then disease and pathology that might be treated if uh, if possible. And so, I mean, it's just something I shake my head every time I, I hear about these missions trips and what they find and how they really change, totally change a person's life and well-being by sometimes something as easy, like you mentioned, a pair of glasses, contacts, or a surgery like a cataract surgery. Um, so it's it's very, I think it's just so great. That's an interest of yours. What What kind of changed... Your, you know, here you're in this great practice, cataract surgery practice. Uh, you know, what kind of shifted your direction in into creating ACE Global? Um, you know, that was um, kind of there, there were kind of two forces at play um, that eventually led to me actually cutting back uh, to part time in private practice and, and spending the rest of my professional energy. Um, with this global, uh, you know, this global program that we're developing. Um, the first is linked to what you just mentioned. I also had a lot of friends and myself went on a lot of these kind of traditional missions trips. After that initial experience that I had in college, um, I committed to going back to a low income country um, at least once a year, all through medical school and residency and training and uh, continued to do that through my whole career. So either once or twice a year, I would go to, um, you know, a country in Africa or or Latin America um, where there was an underserved community. Um, and I would go in and do as much cataract surgery as I could possibly do in a week, uh, sometimes two weeks. 
And, you know, then I would, would come home. And I had a few experiences and, and some observations that just begin to accumulate through those trips that started to change my uh, my paradigm a little bit or my worldview, so to speak. Um, one of those was I, I went to this community um, in uh, a Latin American country in Bolivia, and I, you know, put a team, a surgical team together and a screening team together of optometrists and ophthalmologists. And we all went and we saw, uh, I think we screened like two or 3000 patients and we did a couple hundred surgeries and we had the best of intentions and we felt really good about what we were able to accomplish during that trip. And on the last day before I'm about to return home, uh, the local ophthalmologist that lived in the next town came to introduce himself to me. And I didn't know he was, you know, even there. And in, in the most polite and professional way possible, you know, he said, hey, thanks for coming. Um, I'll be sure to take care of all of these patients um, for their post-op care. And I'll take care of all of the complications that I know, you know, probably occurred during the week. And oh, by the way, I want you to know that I wasn't able to pay my staff this week because a lot of those patients that you did surgery on were my private practice patients. And why would they come have surgery with me when they can have surgery for free by the white man? <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> and it was like a punch in the gut, you know, and I had to, you know, really take that in. And I, I felt myself being defensive at first and, and, me and this ophthalmologist are actually great friends now. And I thank him to this day for having the courage to come talk to me about that. But what it made me realize is that even though we coming from high income countries, you know, we, we see the problem through our, our own lens from our own perspective. Right. And sometimes we don't always have the perspective of living in a low income country, living in a setting of poverty and, and very limited resources, and so um, I kind of changed what I was doing at that point. I said, you know what? I'm not going to go and do this anymore unless I'm partnered with a national, with a local, you know, eye care team that I can support and help. And once I started doing that, I, I started learning so much more. And I realized that there is, you know, a an economy of, of health care for the poor. Um, and it's very fragile. <laughs> and we can mm -hmm. sometimes disrupt that that economy if we're if we're not careful and we would never mean to do that obviously i would never intend to hurt this guy's business or to hurt this guy's community but i was you know imagine if um if a, if a foreigner came to our community um and he was perceived as being a better physician and better trained and decided to see all the patients that he could see for free <laughs> that would be hard for sure. us to compete against wouldn't it that would so, be difficult um so that kind of kick-started just a whole process of really realizing that cataract surgery and preventable blindness is more of a socioeconomic problem than it is a medical problem. And we really, we like to address it as a, from a medical point of view as physicians, but we really have to take our physician hat off and address it as a socioeconomic problem. And so that's one of the reasons that we created ACE Global is um, trying to address the problem of preventable blindness, not just from the medical standpoint, but from the socioeconomic standpoint. Um, and then simultaneously, um, from on a more personal um, side of the story, um, about 10 years ago, I was uh, kind of thrown a curveball, and I was diagnosed with a rare form of muscular dystrophy. 
It's called FSH, muscular dystrophy. During my residency, I started having some neck and spine and back pain and headaches um, and started noticing some just minor weakness stuff. But, um, you know, you're a resident, you're working hard, you're not sleeping much, you just kind of blow it off. Um, but that stuff just kept continuing and kept continuing. And I went to see, you know, multiple doctors, was really having a hard time figuring out what was going on, ended up at the Mayo Clinic and was finally handed this diagnosis. And the unfortunate part of the diagnosis is that it affects the muscles of posture. And so as a, as a microsurgeon, you know, sitting at a microscope for the majority of my work week, um, posture is really important and, and holding still, being able to hold your body upright and hold your hands and your arms very still for long periods of time while you're doing surgery is important. And those very muscles that allow you to hold your, your spine and your neck um, upright and in a, a single position, those were being uh, weakened by this, you know, by this disease. And so um, I, I began to really experience a lot of pain and, and more progressive weakness. And I was really struggling to keep up. And, you know, before this diagnosis, I was very active. I even, you know, ran an Ironman triathlon. And um, it, so it was kind of a hard blow. Um, both physically and then also, you know, emotionally, you know, it's a, a bit of a bit of a blow to the ego. We um, we cataract surgeons like to pound our chests and talk about, you know, how many surgeries we can do. And I'm sure you've <laughs> encountered that, you know, uh, Lynn. And, and, you know, here I am being handed um, some news that, gosh, you might not be able to do quite so much surgery and you're going to eventually not be able to do surgery at all. And um, through that process, I was able to um, to realize, you know, maybe my greatest contribution is not how many surgeries I can sit down and do at the microscope, but maybe my greatest contribution can be developing creative ways to teach and to train eye care teams in other parts of the world that don't have access to education always um, and have a bigger, you know, impact that way. And so, that, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, that's, that's vision beyond sight in taking what's there both physically, emotionally, and and looking beyond. Uh, it's got to be devastating when we get some a type of diagnosis like that that not only impacts our health but our livelihood at a very, very young age. And to turn that around to still fulfill your mission, but maybe in a different way, is truly remarkable. Thank you. Yeah, I and, and you said it. It's just um, I'm I'm very grateful for it. I mean, there's days where you get frustrated with you know the discomfort and the the fatigue of the disease, um, but ultimately I'm really grateful for it because I I think if I didn't have that opportunity that forced me to to kind of pick my eyes up from the operating microscope and and look at the bigger picture of my life, um, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today with Ace. And um, I'm really grateful for that. And I truly believe that, you know, I will have no regrets and I'll, I'll look back on my life one day and, and um, you know, hopefully be proud of, of what we're, we're able to accomplish um, on, a, on a global scale. And I never would have the opportunity to do that in the four corners, you know, of my confined into the four corners of my operating room. And, and if I was left to my own devices, I'd spend, you know, 60 hours a week in there. Right. So yeah, I'm, 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 I'm very grateful for it. 
And I'm grateful that those kind of two simultaneous experiences collided at the same time. And that that was the kind of the spark or the idea that uh, that started Ace Global. Uh, well, you know, the universe certainly operates in mysterious and miraculous ways. And that's so interesting. Uh, Kevin, are you able to do any surgery right now? Are you still functional enough that you can do certain surgeries? I am. Yeah. So, um, you know, I went from, you know, operating or working, um, you know, sitting at the scope full days, five days a week to um, now I do it like three days, half day a week. You know, I can probably do 15 or or 20 surgeries in a day where I used to do two or three times, you know, that much. So, yes, I can. Um, and I just constantly have to uh, reevaluate and scale back a little bit. And each year I scale back a little bit more and a little bit more. And um, eventually I'll get to the point where I can't, um, where I won't do surgery anymore. But I'm very fortunate in that it's not happening all of a sudden. And I, I get some time for my ego to kind of <laughs> process that and, and to let it go in, a, in kind of a natural pace. Yeah, which is really great. And I'm happy to hear that. Uh that you still have great opportunity to be a, be a surgeon as well. Uh, we're going to take a break here for just a couple minutes. And when we come back, we'll talk more about ACE as well as just some general concepts uh, in cataract surgery and what's new because that field is changing very quickly as well. So hang on, we'll be right back. Discover the power of the seeing brain, the creator of your true vision. Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's number one bestseller book, Expand Your Vision, helps you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Remove roadblocks and visualize your new lens to see and experience your world. Get Expand Your Vision on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Okay, and welcome back. Uh, we've been talking to Dr. Kevin Barber about the ACE Global nonprofit that he has created and works very actively in. Uh, let's learn a little bit more about that um, nonprofit, Kevin. Uh, how is it funded and and how is it really run? Great question. I'm still figuring that out. <laughs> <laughs> I spent a lot of time learning how to do uh, cataract surgery, but not so much time uh, in medical school, learning how to uh, run a nonprofit organization. So my favorite saying is, is we're building uh, the airplane as we fly it. Got it. So, <laughs> um, so we uh, we started ACE uh, with a uh, a good friend of mine, Daniel Chang. We did residency together uh, about 15, uh, gosh, 18 years ago. And in 2018, we formed uh, ACE Global. And one of, as I kind of alluded to earlier, um, we were involved in that kind of traditional model of let's go and do surgery in a low income, you know, community somewhere and then come home. Um, and we were realizing how limited that is when you look from an epidemiology perspective, you know, 200, they're estimating 280 million people that are visually impaired from cataracts. So doing, you know, a hundred at a time. Uh, once or twice a year is never is not even keeping up with you know just the the population growth much less cutting into the backlog 
And so we've got to go about this problem a different way. And so we actually took a couple of years where we just did surveys. We went to lots of training programs in low-income countries. We went to ministers of health of low-income countries, um, a couple in Africa, but mostly in Latin America, just to observe and to learn what the system of eye care delivery was like. Um, and the first thing that was very obvious is there's just not enough eye doctors being trained. The second thing that we observed is that um, the training oftentimes was very deficient. So here in the United States, most of our surgical training is subsidized by Medicare. Um, Medicare helps pay hospitals for the salary of, of residents to learn surgery. So money's not as big of an obstacle. Um, in Honduras, for example, where most of our programs are, are headquartered, um, there's no government funding. So there's only one residency training program. They train two residents per year for a country of over 10 million people. Um, and so the the faculty are, are essentially volunteers and there's only five of them. So, um, and because they're only volunteers, they still have to earn money. Um, so they have their private practices too. So typically what happens is one or two of the volunteer faculty will come um, in the morning from eight till noon train the residents as much as they can, and then they leave at noon to go to their private practices. And that's all the residents get. And so there's a real limitation in how much education, uh, especially surgical education, that these young doctors receive. So when they do graduate, oftentimes they're just not ready for independent surgery. They go out and they try, they have complications, they get frustrated, they give up. And we've you know just spent eight years training a surgeon who can't operate. And after that happens for decades, um, that's how the, the blindness epidemic kind of came to be. And so we have lots of global ophthalmologists in low-income countries that can't do surgery. So we decided that's where we would start. And so we've partnered with the residency program, and we try to supplement the surgical education there. Um, and we've done that a few different ways. Um, we have built a, a simulation lab there so we can do lots of simulation training, just like pilots go through simulation training before they ever get behind, you know, the uh, get into a real cockpit, kind of the same thing. We'll do simulation training. We have virtual reality trainers. Um, and then we go take them through a process of surgical education. And so what I've done is we've gone out and we've recruited all of those friends that you and I have that are willing to go um, do a, a, a missions trip. And I tell them, I said, hey, instead of going to a community and doing um, practicing your skill by yourself, come teach that skill to these young doctors who don't have access to education. And your efforts are going to be multiplied over the career of that doctor. And I tell you, it's been a beautiful thing. We actually now have a waiting list of of surgeons and optometrists that want to go down and, and teach um, teach our, our young physicians. And so we're, we're building a supplemental um, database of educators. And it's mostly people in private practice. Some of them are in academics, but most of them are in private practice. And they said, yeah, I'll give a, a week, uh, a year to go down and teach these young doctors. And uh, it's just kind of built or grown into a, a really powerful education system. And then we've uh, more recently added on what's called a fellow, fellowship program. So an additional one year of training um, after the, the residency uh, graduation process. And um, our, our fellowship is a very intensive surgical year. They, we bring these fellows, these young fellows to the United States for some observership at 
uh, at different universities. They'll go to Emory University or Harvard or different places that we've partnered with. And then they take that knowledge back um, with some U.S. teams that come to supplement them. And they do a lot, um, a lot of surgery. So just to give you a, um, a reference point, there's less than 100 ophthalmologists total in Honduras. And the average ophthalmologist there does between 50 and 100 cataract surgeries per year. So very, very small volume. And our fellows are graduating with over a thousand surgeries just in one year. Wow. So we feel like that's the way that we can, um, that we can reverse this epidemic is that we can train more doctors and the doctors that we train, we can teach them um, the scales of economy where they, you know, they can do higher volumes and that, that makes the, the economic side of the equation work. And it also makes the epidemiology side of the equation work. Um, and so, uh, so that's, that's where we are. And it's, it's a lot of fun. We've been so humbled by how many people want to be involved and how, how many people want to um, donate their time. And so that, to answer your question of how do we fund it, <laughs> you know, a, a little prayer every day and and you just keep um uh, you know, finding more and more people that are willing to, to give just a little bit and, and volunteer just a little bit. So we have a very small, humble budget, but, um, you know, we, we've hired an executive director, um, Carolyn Newman, and, and she runs these programs. And then we just coordinate all of our volunteer, uh, medical providers, um, into these educational opportunities. Uh, that's amazing what you've done. And as many, you know, you've, astronomically have increased the number of people getting care yet we all know it's just the very very small tip of the iceberg of people that are still getting treatment um i know when i spoke in the philippines about five six years ago and it was um a, an optometric conference for the whole regional area so we saw people from vietnam and china and uh, docs from all over came over australia and i met an optometrist from Vietnam. And at the time she was one of nine optometrists in the whole country of 90 million people. Wow. Uh, it was estimated 21 million people needed eye care, but the same thing, they don't didn't have a school there. And so they've had some great efforts. And last I read, um, you know, they just graduated a class of 55. And wow. So, so that seems like, small but tremendous for what's been there and so every country one by one needs needs support and help in trying to and and we're looking at you know this narrow beam of just mainly eye care we're, you could say that for so many other medical conditions as well but there's there are some other programs for some of the other you know medical kinds of conditions around the world um so, yeah, so it's a, a major problem, but boy, what a great um, process you've created. It's uh, not just helping one-on-one -on -one for every doc you help, you're now helping hundreds and thousands of more people. And so mentoring has always been close to my heart. It's it's what I call, you know, it's it's our doctors of the future and it's our our, our wellness for the future. So what a great program to include beyond just doing the surgery. Mm, thank you. And, and you're right. And that mentorship process is also, I think, what keeps everybody coming back. You know, the, the personal connection that's, that begins to happen, um, you know, 
when when a doctor travels from from here down to there and they kind of get in the skin of of the doctors there and they realize what it's like to you know work in a clinic that doesn't have eye drops to dilate eyes or to um you know doesn't have uh the basic equipment in the operating room and and how do you function and and you and you really start to feel their struggle um it's it's quite an experience and it's a very it's a strong bonding experience and one of the most pleasurable things has been to watch these long-term relationships develop between the mentors and the mentees and what what's great now is that in cataract surgery, we have two different ways. The most common way, as you know, Lynn, that we do cataract surgeries with FACO, right? And FACO right. is an ultrasound device that costs a lot of money. They're expensive devices. In low-income countries, you can actually take a cataract out manually without the FACO machine, and the results are very similar. Um, however, we in the U.S. are not taught that, that procedure any longer, <laughs> um, but there's a lot of U.S. surgeons who are getting involved globally that want to learn how to do that. Well, guess what? Our Honduran surgeons and our, our surgeons from Latin America that we're training, they become very proficient early on with the manual surgery. And so now what's happening is my learning surgeons uh, in, a, in a low-income country will be taught FACO by our U.S. volunteers. And in return, they will teach the U.S. surgeons, the, the mentors, so to speak, how to do the manual surgery. And so we get this beautiful relationship and this beautiful interchange where it's not just I'm teaching you, but it's, you're also teaching me. And then just watching the the dynamic of that relationship expand for the, through the years is really the most, um, you know, one of the, the most enjoyable things to watch. And in the meantime, a bunch of, you know, blind people are getting to see. So it, it really is a fun job. A win-win everywhere. Um, what do you do for lenses? Are those donated? Do you have a variety of lenses to pick from for uh, your implants? Yeah, great question. So supply chain is always one of the biggest obstacles being, you know, a socioeconomic problem. How do you pay for that? Right. So we start with donations and there's um, organizations like C International and there's uh, industry like Alcon that are very, very generous. And they um, uh, and in fact, I'm leaving on Saturday to go down to Honduras and I have 17 hockey bags packed with lens implants that have been, you know, donated Um that'll be good for a few hundred, you know, a few hundred surgeries, but that's not sustainable, right? A charitable model can only take you so far. So then um, once we get um, an eye center kind of up and running with the charitable donations, we eventually switch over to supply chain. So there's companies in India, um, Aura Lab is the big one. They make lens implants for sometimes 10 to $20, Wow. Um, so a lot more economical than the $150, which is on average what we would pay for a, a standard lens implant here in the U.S. Um, and so we'll try to set that up. And then what we do is we actually charge patients. We do a sliding scale. We don't turn any patients away. So if a patient truly can pay for nothing, they pay. They don't pay anything. But there are patients that can pay sometimes $25 or $50 or $100. And we have social workers that that use a, you know, kind of a vetted out system for that. And that little bit of money that comes in helps to keep the lights on, helps to buy that next batch of lens implants and consumables that we need, you know, for, you know, for the surgery. Because our exit plan is, you know, five to 10 years from now, we want to leave Honduras and we want to go somewhere else. And we want everything that's been built to be self-sustaining. And as long as it's kind of hinged or, or dependent on charity, it's it's not self-sustaining, right? So we right. use the charitable donations to get it started. 
and then we work as quickly as we can to get into sustainable supply chain. That's so interesting. Uh, let people, let our listeners know how they can either get involved or help. You know, eye doctors uh, can certainly contact you and we'll have your information on the show notes. But, uh, you know, what about people who may not be in the eye care field? How could they help your cause? Oh, wow. Thank you for that uh, for that question. Well, I think probably the best way would be to go to our website. It's uh, acecaresglobal.org. Um, you know, it can be as simple as a, as a monetary donation or, or sharing us on, on social media just for awareness. Um, you know, we, we partner with so many different industries and so many that aren't, um, you know, even related to eye care. We just partnered with, with Crowley, a, a shipping container company, you know, and they help us ship all these lens implants down there. And who would have thought that a shipping company could help out, you know, a nonprofit with, uh, you know, doing uh, blindness eradication. So it's it's really fun to see how anybody, no matter where you are or what you do, there's probably some way to, you know, to make just a little small difference. So I'd say go to our website, send us an email, and, um, you know, we take it from there. And of course, with eye care providers, that's really easy. We have online mentoring uh, opportunities. We have, uh, you know, the ability to travel with us with one of our teams, um, we do technician training. We do lots of, you know, lots of different things. And so lots of great ways to get people plugged in. Isn't that great? Um, so if, if you put on a new pair of glasses here, Kevin, and you saw a world without blindness, what would that look like? Wow. I think that that would be, I think the effects of a blind free world would blow all of our minds when someone goes blind in a low-income country, their their life expectancy is a third of um, of their equal who can see. And not only does it affect them, it affects their family and their community, right? So low-income countries don't have resources like blind services and Medicaid. So now a child has to stay and take care of that blind, you know, family member, which means that child doesn't go to school and doesn't get an education and the cycle of poverty just continues. So I think a world without blindness would um, go well beyond just the, um, the amazing gift of individuals not being blind, but I think we would see a huge blossoming of, of community welfare and um, a, a huge lessening of, uh, of poverty because you've got a huge, I mean, imagine if 280 people can get back to the workforce and can get back to living independently instead of being, um, you know, burdensome to, to their communities because they can't work or they have a, they're very limited in what they can do. So that's the vision I have. And I know that vision will um, take longer than my lifetime, but um, I think we just have to keep heading, you know, heading in that direction and eventually we'll get there. What a beautiful answer. Thank you for that. You know, in our last couple minutes, I just wanted to take a little time for you to share some of your research that uh, you're excited about and, and what's new in the eye care field. Um, oh gosh, that's um, that. There, there's so much, you know, so much going on, um, especially in, in cataract and glaucoma, um, because those are so so prevalent. And most people have two eyes, and most people will get cataracts if they live long enough. There's um, you know a, a big uh, demand uh, for this. So lots of research dollars are going into that. 
Um, I do a lot of um, clinical trials and uh, device development for glaucoma. Um, because in low-income countries, it's really hard to treat glaucoma. We don't have the eye drops available that we do today, and there's an economic component to that, right? If you can't afford a pair of glasses, how are you going to afford um, these really expensive eye drops to treat your glaucoma? So we're looking for um, very low-cost surgical devices. So just as an example, there's one we're working with now where we actually take scleral tissue from the eye, so the white part of the eye, and um, dissect a little part of it out and insert it into um, close to the drain of the eye. And it serves as like a, a stent. And wow. so it's an autograft, you know, and so therefore there's no, um, you know, we don't have to go uh, manufacture an expensive device. It can be grafted right there from a patient's own, um, you know, own eye. Um, we're also working with some companies that are doing robotic cataract surgery and people kind of laugh and go, gosh, all right, you're trying to take care of the poorest people in the world with cataract surgery. And then you're also trying to develop a robot. How do you make those two fit? Um, and the answer is, I believe, you know, technology really is going to fill the gap. We're never going to train enough eye doctors to meet the, the population demand. We're too far behind. So the only way to do that is to use technology that can rapidly um, grow our, our productivity. So if we have a robot that can do surgery faster and more accurate than a human, but a human still has to oversee that robot, maybe a human surgeon can oversee four or five robots going at a time. And maybe that would allow one cataract surgeon to do four or 500 cataract surgeries in a day. Now that's a long way off, but that's what we're going to need to, to conquer the cataract backlog and just to stay up with the population growth on our planet um, until we can, you know, train enough doctors, which no, no political um, country, I haven't seen that political agenda come up in any country yet. So, right. <laughs> so, um, so those are the things that I, that I spend my time with now, or, or how can we develop technology that will be low cost, but develop solutions for rendering eye care to large populations of people that currently have no access. Well, Kevin, you're not only a wealth of knowledge, you're a wealth of inspiration as well. Uh, as we close today, is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Hey, I would just like to thank you for this opportunity. I'm, I'm so glad I found out about um, you and I really enjoy listening to your podcast and just bringing some, some spark and light and inspiration into the world and uh, appreciate all that you do. And thanks for the opportunity to chat today. Well, my pleasure. And thanks to you. And thanks for everybody else listening today. And remember, your vision doesn't define you. You define your vision. Expand your vision and see with clarity, gain courage and confidence. Thanks again, Dr. Kevin Barber. And we'll see you all next week. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on Vision Beyond Sight. Join Dr. Lynn Hellerstein each week to help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Remember, your vision does not define you. You define your vision. For more information and find additional podcasts, visit lynnhellerstein.com. See you next time on Vision Beyond Sight.